Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 19, and we'll read verses 12 through 14. But who can discern his errors? Clear thou me from hidden faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As we prepare our hearts now for the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, I want to ask this question. How do people who love God deal with sin in their lives? How do people who really love God, who can sing worship songs with all their heart and mean it, and who love the word of God, deal with the presence of sin and the temptation to sin in their lives? And you can hear my assumption. My assumption is that we who love God, who cherish him and who delight in his presence, who long to please him, Nevertheless, sin every day. That's my assumption. And the question then becomes, well, what do you do with that? Do you live a life of utter dismay and misery over that circumstance? Do you treat it glibly as though it really doesn't matter? How do you deal as a person who loves God with sin? And I'm going to talk to people who love God this morning. I know there are people who don't love God in this room. And uh, I'm glad you're here. And my prayer is that even though I'm going to talk to people who love God, you'll be listening in and you'll be hearing things that are so good that you're going to be saying by the time this is over, this is God worthy to be loved. How could I not love this God? Okay, so you listen And then when we come to this table, you'll be at a point of crisis because this table is only for the lovers of God. And you can eat it if God moves you before we're done to love him. Now, the reason I start this way is because as I look at this psalm here, I see David, first of all, telling us that he loves God and then telling us how he deals with sin. Let me show you those two steps. Start in verse 9, about halfway through. By the way, if you're wondering what happened to the middle verses, that's next Sunday night's message. I had to kind of adjust here for communion, and things don't exactly work the way I'd want. But next Sunday night, we'll take the middle verses, these glorious things about the Word of God. But just start at verse 9, about halfway through, and it says, The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. In other words, David loves God. He loves the word of God. David has a kind of relationship with God so that when God speaks, even if he speaks in ordinances and commands, David feels at that moment like he's just inherited a million dollars. That's what it means to love God. When God opens his mouth and addresses David, David feels like he's just inherited a million dollars of gold. That's loving God. Or he gets even more emotional and inward about it. He says, it's not just like getting gold. It's like eating honey. And I thought of Butterfinger blizzards. 
or or Italian sausage pizza or now in this season, hot corn on the cob with butter and salt. The Bible does things like that. God is like that, he says. Loving God is like is like walking through the woods, finding a big bee's nest that's just dripping with honey and standing under it and getting some when you're and going like that and having your eyes sparkle. That's what God is like. This man loves God. He doesn't have some kind of mere intellectual commitment to the truth and authority of the Bible. He tastes the Bible. He tastes God and he tastes good to David. And now he sins. Okay, this is just life. David is that kind of person. Most of you in this room are that kind of person. We're at all different levels of our capacities to taste God. But most of us are like that. And now what about sin? They seem so different. And so we move to these verses, 12, 12 and 13 especially, is where we'll focus this morning. Two things that everybody who belongs to Christ needs to realize. First, we need to understand that when we love God, it is the evidence that we are called of God to his family and that he is now working everything together for our good. That's the first thing everybody needs to know. If you love God, it is the evidence that you are called by God into his family. And in his family, he's working everything for your good. Now, I get that all from Romans 8:28. God works everything together for good for those who, what's the next phrase? Love him and are called. See, it's all right there in that verse, those three elements. If you love him, it's evidence that he called you. And if he called you, he is working everything together for your good, even the sins in your life. That's the first thing. The second thing everybody needs to know about their life in Christ is that Even though you love him, even though he called you, even though he is now at work with tremendous exuberance to put everything together for your good, you sin every day. And I sin every day. So I don't mean to imply when I say that a person can love God immensely, that somehow The sin problem is yesterday. It is today and it is tomorrow. And it will be until the day we die. And the reason I think that's so crucial to know and that we find out how to deal with sin in our hearts that love God is because if you don't know how to deal with sin, then you're going to become more vulnerable to Satan's accusations and you will be tottering. And not only Satan's accusations, but our own propensities to despair are very great. Now, what I see in these two verses, 12 and 13, are two ways of sinning, two ways of sinning, and then two ways of dealing with these two ways of sinning. So let's look at the two ways of sinning. First of all, the first is in verse 12. The second is in verse 13. I think you can see them as easily as I can. So let me just highlight them. Verse 12 says, Who can discern his errors? Clear thou me of hidden 
faults. Now, this first way of sinning has two characteristics. First, it's baffling. Who can discern his faults is an expression of bafflement. Who can get to the bottom of his own heart? Who can grasp this sin that pops out and sneaks up? It's just baffling. Sin is baffling in the life of a person who loves God, isn't it? Aren't you baffled by your tongue? I am daily baffled by this instrument of wickedness that can so easily become the little rudder that takes the whole life into a mess at home, at work, in the neighborhood. It's baffling. Sin is baffling in the heart. Of a person who loves God. That's characteristic number one of this first kind of sinning. Characteristic number two in this first kind of sinning is that the sinfulness of it is hidden. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Clear thou me of hidden faults. Now, let's think about this for a minute because I think it could be easily misunderstood. That doesn't mean that you are doing something that you know about and nobody else knows about. Some secret lie, some secret lust, some secret uh, scheme. That's not what the text is talking about. Something you know about and you're planning to do, but nobody else knows about it. And therefore it's hidden. That's not the point. And you know that's not the point because the setup for this hiddenness is the first phrase, who can discern his own errors? See, that's the issue in the verse. My errors baffle me and they are hidden from me. Somehow. And yet, here's another thing I don't think it means. It doesn't mean that I don't know what I did. I don't know what I said. I don't know how I felt. What it means is, I just can't see the sinfulness of it. I didn't see the sinfulness of it when I said it. I didn't see the sinfulness of it when I did it. I didn't feel the sinfulness of it when I felt it. It was hidden from me. Somehow. And I gave some thought to how does that happen that we do things, say things, feel things, and the sinfulness of them are hidden for a time. And I thought of three ways that happens. Uh, The first is um, just owing to immaturity. You become a Christian. Your life is a mess. You haven't grown up, say, in a Christian home, haven't been taught the Bible. It's a foreign book and didn't go to any Christian schools and Just church and everything's foreign. And you become a Christian because you see the gospel. Christ meets your needs. You bow before him, confess your sins, ask him into your life. He comes in. And now what? It's just a long series of discovering how wrong you've been about a lot of things. And for a while, you just keep on doing some wrong things because nobody's told you they're wrong yet. Nobody has connected the gospel and this wrong thing. And along comes some good brother or sister and says, you know, there's a real inconsistency between this use of language, this habit at work, this pattern of relating, this way of communicating, and what you've just now done with Jesus. And you say, you're right. And then you change. See, that's one way. Just slow, gradual discovery that some things you've been doing aren't in sync with Jesus. The second thing is that sometimes we've been in a pattern of sin so long and feel so at home, so successful, so natural in this pattern of sinning 
that even when somebody tells us it's wrong, we just can't feel it's wrong. It just doesn't look wrong. I can't believe that's wrong. It feels right, good, satisfies. I mean, I'm happier this way. It just can't be wrong. And it it may go on that way for a long time, where in truth you say to your conscience, I cannot believe that's wrong. And you keep on doing it. That's one way it's hidden. A second way. A third way, I think this is the most common experience for, for all of us in Christ, is that we know that the act uh, or the attitude or the way of communicating or something like that is sinful, but it has become such a part of our personality or our habits that it sneaks up on us. And it's out before we can do anything about it. And it may take two seconds to recognize it as sinful. It may take an hour. It may take a week. It may take somebody confronting you. But you do recognize it and you feel terrible about it. Again, I, I don't like to do that. That's probably the most common kind of hiddenness. It's a brief hiddenness. A hiddenness that comes from habit and personality, complexities, so that it's just out, it sneaks up on you, it's out, the act, the attitude, the word, it's out, and you just feel terrible that there it is again, this awful thing that I'm dealing with. So those are three ways that this first kind of sinning can be hidden, can sneak up on you, and it's just baffling. So, category number one of sinning is the area of bafflement and hiddenness. That's verse 12. Now, category number two of sinning is in verse 13. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Now, David is clearly making a distinction here between the sins that baffle and are hidden, and the sins that are presumptuous. What does that mean, presumptuous sinning? I I think it means sins where you presume, there's the verb behind that word presumptuous, sins where you presume to know better than God. You presume that it's no big deal to sin. Those would be two things that I thought would be included in presumption. On the one hand, you say, Look, I know God says it's wrong. I know the Bible says it's wrong. And I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. That's a presumptuous sin. Or the other one would be, I know it's wrong and I know it's sin, but it's just no big deal to sin. God's a God of grace. No big deal to sin. Those would be two ways of psychologically confronting a sin and becoming a presumptuous Sinner. There's forethought, there's defiance, there's rebellion, there's full intention. Your eyes are wide open. I think we can all feel the difference, can't we, between the baffling sin that sneaks up on you, that you hate, you battle, you fight, and the presumptuous attitude that says, I don't care what God or his book says. It feels right. I'm going to do it. My life will be better. I'm going ahead. Those are just real big different ways of sinning that David is dealing with here. Now, how do you deal? How did David deal with those two ways of sinning? His prayers give us a clue here in 12 and 13 to how he dealt with them. 
He prays about the first kind of sinning in verse 12 by saying, clear. Now, here your versions are saying different words there. So let me say something about that verb in a minute. Clear thou me of hidden faults. Now, that word clear means acquit, absolve, forgive, let go. Don't impute it to me. Don't count it against me. If we move over into the New Testament and let the Apostle Paul do the talking, we would say, justify me. Count me righteous. Do not impute my sin to me. Lay it on Jesus where it was laid when he died. Lift it off of me. I think that's what's going on in verse 12. It's sin that has been done. It's real sinfulness here in verse 12. Not sin that's contemplated and not yet done, but sin that's contemplated because it has been done. It's there. It snuck up on him. And he knows that there's some there he hasn't even recognized yet when he says, cleanse me of hidden faults. So the first way of dealing with this sin, this first way of sinning is to pray for um, forgiveness, acquitting, pardon. He prays very differently for the second kind of sinning, doesn't he? In verse 13, he says, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Now, that's not a prayer for forgiveness. That's not a prayer for pardon. That's a prayer that a sin contemplated, a presumptuous act of rebellious, defiant disobedience is contemplated. And the prayer is, don't let me do it. Give me power not to do it. So let me sum up the two ways of dealing with two P's and two F's. Maybe they'll stick. The first way of dealing with the first category of sinning was to pray for pardon. And the way of dealing with the second category of sin was to pray for power. So pardon and power. You just lock those into your mind. We need pardon for sin that we've done. We need power not to sin. Or the two F's would be we need forgiveness for the sins we've done, and we need fullness, fullness of strength, fullness of resolve, fullness of joy to be more attracted by righteousness than by the presumption of rebellion and sin. Now, let me qualify something here, because if you're tracking with me carefully, you've probably got a question or two in your mind about whether these P's really correspond to these two kinds of sins or whether they can kind of cross over. So let me... Qualify. Um, let's see what the text does not say. The text uh, does not say that you shouldn't pray for power over hidden sinfulness. It doesn't say you shouldn't pray for power, only pardon. It doesn't say that. Nor does it say you shouldn't pray for pardon if you have come through a season of rebellion, presumption, and now are broken for it. Why did he pray it like this and leave open what I just said? And I think he's telling us something about ourselves very crucial. And I want us to understand this. I think he's telling us at least two things. Number one, I think he's saying those who love God will battle baffling sin till the day they die. And pardon, therefore, is especially precious and especially needy. 
There's an especial here. It's not unique. It's not only. It's a special. I mean, what would we do if we couldn't have daily pardon for this outcropping of the baffling sinfulness within? So pardon is especially precious for that. And presumptuous sins are more rare and more manageable. And therefore, it is a unique prayer here, or I didn't want to say that, not unique, but especially that we should pray for power. Because I believe, and here I'm not moving into some kind of sinless perfectionism, I hope that's clear, I believe you can totally conquer presumptuous sinning in your life. If you define it the way I defined it. Planned, forethought, defiance, rebellion. I think you can end that in your life. And in fact, I would go so far as to say we must end it as a characteristic of our lives or we're not saved. Now, mark my words carefully. We must end presumptuous sinning as a characteristic of our lives. That's the unforgivable sin. If you would ask me, define the unforgivable sin, I would say it is coming into a pattern of presumptuous sinning to the point where you cannot repent anymore because you don't want to. Getting to the point in a pattern and characteristic of presumptuous sinning, not where you can't be saved, but where you won't repent beyond repentance. And so I want to say, that there is pardon a full and a plenty for these characteristic outcroppings of our hidden, baffling, old, sinful nature. And then there's the warfare with presumptuous sinning, and we can get victory over it. Now and then we may fall into a brief season of rebellion for some reason or another due to the psychological complexity of this motor up here. But it will not any longer in Christ be the characteristic theme of our life that we live in rebellion against the Lord. That's just what it means to be a Christian by definition. Now we're going to move to the Lord's table where all of this was purchased. And I'd like you to bow. And I've asked Leah, not that we sing this next hymn like I'd originally planned, but that she play it because I thought maybe there'll just be some spiritual things you need to do with the Lord that are not quite the words of this hymn. So you just deal with God in the quietness of your heart while Leah plays and while we move to the table. This table is open to you, whether you are a member of Bethlehem or not. Like I said at the beginning, this is a moment of crisis. I have seen people at Bethlehem converted at this moment, what I mean by crisis is that if you came into this room not loving God, not yielded to him, not trusting his son, uh, and have now come to a point where you say, I need pardon for all my sins, and I need power to fight at every level, and I am willing to receive that pardon and that power from Jesus then you can just say that to him now, invite him to give it to you, yield your life to him, and eat. And I hope you'll do that. Power and pardon.
It's all purchased by the blood of Jesus. See, back in the Old Testament, David and the prophets only had the dimmest notion how God would pull this off. How would he let guilty sinners off and be just? How would he just overlook David's sin with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, and just wash it away? Just let it go and smile upon this man forevermore and call him a man after his own heart. Isaiah got the best glimpse of all, didn't he, in the Old Testament, where he said, looking 700 years into the future about Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everybody in this room is a straying sheep. And the Lord, God Almighty, the Father, has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity, the sin, the rebellion, the hidden corruption of us all. It's an awesome liberation. I don't know how anybody lives without it. And I invite you to enjoy it. Joy stalking you this morning. The joy of pardon and the joy of power. You're welcome to eat if you open yourself to that joy.